Welcome to OxPods, the podcast by Oxford students and their professors. The Tudor period is marked in the historical memory, perhaps more than anything else, by the profound religious change it bore witness to. Across the reigns of Henry VIII and his children, the English church swung from Catholicism to Protestantism and back again, but did the shifts in doctrine change an English person's everyday experience of piety? How did the theological and political debates of the Tudor court set the stage for the modern Church of England? I'm Charlie Bowden, a history student at Jesus College Oxford, and I'm speaking to Dr Lucy Wooding, Langford Fellow and Tutor in History at Lincoln College, about the landscape of the church in Tudor England. Hi Lucy, thank you so much for doing this with me. You're very welcome, it's nice to be asked. Uh, So we're talking today about the church in Tudor England, and I guess it would be a good place to start to ask you um, what aspects of English society you would consider to fall under the church in the early modern period. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think... You know, to the outsider, you hear the word church, you think of an institution, um, you perhaps think of an institution that defines doctrine you know, in, in very formulaic ways. Uh, but I think from the point of view of your early modern contemporaries, you know, to the ordinary individual, the church was first and foremost... You know, as a thing, it was the, the building that they went to every Sunday and around which uh, a lot of communal life revolved. And more than that, I think they would have thought of themselves as a body of believers. I think they would have defined church in those terms, perhaps even thought of themselves as part of the wider um, Christian body of Christendom, but certainly thought of themselves as members of a believing community. So, you know, the way that their life was shaped by the ritual year, by the um, Christmas and Easter and um, you know the, the, the different church feasts and uh, pre-reformation at least the different fasts as well you know I, th- I think they would have thought of church as being something that they were a part of and that structured their life. And obviously um, when we're talking about the Tudor church predominantly we're speaking about sort of the changes enacted by Henry VIII and uh, his children mm-hmm. but prior to all of those sort of legal changes to the church. Would you say that the church was in a state of decline prior to the Reformation? Do you think that was sort of what led to it or what was able to be used to justify mm. it at least? Yeah, no, I don't think it was in decline. I think for a long, long time we assumed it must have been in decline, which is why, you know, Protestantism was able to flourish. And we did always take the view that Protestantism was something very uh eagerly welcomed by the English population and the old kind of uh, view of this was that England had become a Protestant country uh, for the most part by the end of Henry VIII's reign Um, and still you will find books that say you know Henry VIII was a Protestant I think in the minds of a lot of the the world generally Henry VIII is a Protestant you know this it has been um this this view of the Reformation w- was really something handed down to us by the Elizabethans who first wrote very partisan history of what they had just seen and lived through. Uh, and it was important to them to cast the late medieval church as uh, decadent, corrupt, superstitious, all of these things, and unpopular. Um, but revisionist work... Really, I suppose since the 1970s onwards, has given us a very different picture of that late medieval church. It's clear that there was a lot of popular investment in it. There was actual investment in the form of, you know, uh, parishes paying for 
church building, church decoration. Uh, but there was a lot of emotional and spiritual investment in it as well. So I think we now have a, a, a picture of the late medieval church as something much more vibrant and, and popular, um, but not without its difficulties. So there was always a tension um, between the institutional church, or potentially there was a tension between the institutional church uh, and the more secular authorities. For the most part, they worked together very well. Uh, in fact, you would arguably say that one of the great strengths of Henry VIII's early reign was the fact that he had Wolsey at his side, um, sort of strengthening and reinforcing what he did. Uh, but there were you know, pockets of feeling within uh, the church, perhaps particularly in London, where clerical privilege was resented, where the lack of education of some of the clergy was felt to be a flaw. So, you know, there were already criticisms there. And I think part of the problem was because the late medieval church was such a variegated institution, I think it, it was not immediately evident to it that some of the new ideas emerging in the early years of the 16th century were capable of undermining it. I think a lot of early reform ideas were, were welcomed as, as something that would help revivify the church. And so in many ways, the Reformation was something they didn't see coming, if that makes sense. If the church wasn't in decline, um, what would you say motivated Henry VIII to break with Warren? Well, there's the obvious answer, the catalyst of his marital problems and I think all the Tudors were painfully aware of the potential fragility of their dynasty. It is really really important to secure a succession. We know that the Wars of the Roses loomed large in everybody's imagination. You only have to look at Shakespeare's history plays to see that they still had you know, quite a, a powerful uh, 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 sort of legacy uh, in Tudor society. So Henry needed an heir. Catherine of Aragon hadn't produced one. He, unlike Catherine, did not see Mary as a plausible candidate as ruler of England. Uh, mistakenly, of course, as it proved. Um, so there's the dynastic problem. Um, and obviously he falls for Anne Boleyn and he wants to marry her. Um, I think, though, it would be wrong to see it as just a question of high politics and Henry manipulating the church to get the political result that he wanted. He is a very complicated individual, and it would raise eyebrows, I suppose, to say that he was a very religious individual, because he's not your um, average idea of a, a religious person but he is very very deeply invested in his religion his religion matters to him and he is quite excited by some of the reform currents that are moving through Europe in the early part of the 16th century and that's one of the things that brings him together with Anne Boleyn because she had been brought up at the French court um, she was enthusiastic about things like having the bible in the vernacular um, about uh, combating some of the more superstitious elements of religion and, and developing a more kind of interior faith. Um, that's not anything that's incompatible with late medieval Catholicism, but it was something that I think 
uh, led to Henry feeling a sense of religious mission. So it is significant that when he uh, requests an annulment of his previous, his first marriage, he does so on the basis of scripture. He didn't have to go down that route. But the book of Leviticus is the thing on which he's grounding his case. And that's a slightly unusual thing to do. And it does, I think, indicate that he wasn't just trying to sort out his marital problems. He was clothing that ambition. And perhaps, I think, probably to an extent sincerely, in a sense of responsibility towards religion in his country. Interesting. Um, you've been mentioning already about sort of the religious landscape of Henry VIII's life. Um, it's been asserted by some uh, historians that Henry VIII's Church of England was Catholicism without the Pope. Would you agree with that? Well, I can see how they get there. And I suppose on one level that sort of works. Um, but it's a bit too glib as a phrase. Um, and it's a bit too clear-cut. We now use these labels, Catholicism, Protestantism, and even in the 21st century, you know, there's, a, there's fairly, I mean, even in, a, in an age where in many ways we're, we're not a particularly um, religious society, you know, everybody probably has a sense of what those terms mean. But Catholicism in the 1530s hasn't yet taken on that identity that it, 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 it's acquired by the end of the century. Because this process of, of religious definition is in many ways a consequence of the Reformation. If your religious understanding and your religious way of life is not challenged, then you don't feel a particular need to define it in black and white terms. But of course, as the Reformation kind of moves across Europe and increasingly religious orthodoxy is brought into question, you know, what are you supposed to believe? What is the correct path to salvation? What is the correct interpretation of the Bible? As all of these things become a point of contention, it becomes necessary to give a definite answer. So by the end of the 16th century, there are confessions, there are catechisms, there are de decrees of the Council of Trent. You know, there's, there's a much more clear-cut sense of this is what Catholicism is. And I mean, I don't think you can really say, I mean, Protestantism, yes, okay, but it, it would be more, this is what the Church of England believes, this is what the Lutheran faith believes, this is Calvinism, this is Winglianism, do you see what I mean? Um, but the process of definition is at a slightly later stage. So in the 1530s, when people say, Catholic, they're, they're just using the word to mean universal, and everybody, including you know, early Protestants, would claim that they uphold the Catholic faith in the sense of the universal faith. That's what they're fighting over. So I think to call Henry's religion Catholicism without the Pope doesn't really do justice to the fluctuations that we see in the 1530s and 1540s. Um, or to the very fact that religious definition itself is in its very early stages. So Henry is in many ways sort of experimenting. I think he would have defined himself as a Catholic in the sense of he would have seen himself as upholding the tradition of ages, you know, belonging to um, a long line of you know, religious kings. Um, and he was very 
fierce to defend things that he thought were central. So you know, he he defends the seven sacraments and so on and so forth. He he uh, defends uh, traditional belief in the real presence in the mass. Um, but yeah, the process of religious def definition is too complex at this point to put easy labels on it. Really interesting. And you've mentioned already about um, sort of the Tudor anxiety about the succession. Mm -hmm. And um, for Henry VIII, those anxieties, of course, sort of manifest in the fact that obviously he succeeded by a minor. Um, and it's quite often argued that um, Henry VIII's uh, sort of Regency Council for Edward VI, um, you know, filling it with a lot of uh, reformers and, you know, having Edward educated uh, by reformers like John Cheek, mm -hmm. uh, suggests that he intended his church to to become more Protestant under Edward. Um, would you agree with that sort of contention? Did he, you know, intend to sort of push his son's reign in sort of a more Protestant direction? Well, some people think yes. Um, some, some people think that if Henry VIII had lived longer, he would have himself gone in a more Protestant direction. Some people can discern, you know, signs of that in his later years. Um, but no, I'm not convinced by this. I think Henry had a vision of the church, which I don't think was very intelligible to a lot of other people. I mean, you could argue that the only person who really understood the Henrician Reformation was Henry himself. But I don't think he was ever going to accept Protestantism. He'd had quite a lot of opportunities, uh, and there are some powerful and eloquent advocates for Protestant viewpoints in his court, um, particularly uh, in the form of Thomas Cranmer, whom he trusted. But he remains obdurate. He will not accept justification by faith alone. Uh, and he will not compromise on the mass. And those two sticking points uh, make him look like you know, a very unlikely candidate for a Protestant future. So. I think that he gave his son the best education he could find from very impressive Cambridge humanists. I don't think he envisaged that that would take his son in a Protestant direction. Uh, and it's not completely clear how far Edward had gone down that route when he comes to the throne, because he's still a, a small child. Uh, he is, of course, surrounded by people who are very keen to push him in that direction. Um, including his uncle, uh, Protector Somerset, and Cranmer, who I think sees an opportunity once Henry is, is dead. I think he sees an opportunity to mould the new king and the, the, the new reign in, in, a, in a more Protestant direction. But no, I don't think that's what Henry in, uh, intended at all. I think Henry speaks the rhetoric of balance in his later years. Uh, there's a famous speech he gives to Parliament uh, in Christmas 1545 where he is reproaching the extremists on both sides and you know he's he's moved to tears in fact when he gives this speech and he, he laments the fact that people are calling one another papist on the one side and heretic on the other you know he wants something more measured um, and something that doesn't go to either extreme um, and if you read Cranmer's preface to the Great Bible, the first official English Bible, the preface comes out in, in 1540. Uh, Cranmer again is speaking this rhetoric of balance, you know, not going too far, you know, too, too, um, 
enthusiastically after an evangelical message so much that you leave behind important traditions and equally not being so stuck in the past that you can't see the, the beauty of the gospel and the importance of reform. So I think Henry wanted balance. Um, I mean, it's a funny kind of, he's sometimes called a, a you know, a, a moderate we talk about the via media the middle way that he's trying to pursue it's quite a a blood-stained middle way in that he's quite capable of persecuting and executing people on both sides of of the spectrum but um i think that's reflected too actually in the regency council i think people make far too much out of the fact that at the last minute he takes stephen gardner off it saying you know i'm the only person who can handle stephen gardner um, who is, of course, a, a, someone who defends more traditional Catholic doctrine. Uh, but I think we should take him at face value. I don't think it's because of Gardner's religious views exactly. It's because Gardner is a tough nut and a difficult man. Um, but if you look at the rest of the Regency Council that remains, there is a, a mixture of evangelicals and more conservative elements. Um, so, no, I don't think he envisaged a Protestant future for his son. And um, when that future obviously came about during Edward VI's reign, um, how much agency do you think he had um, over the direction that his church took? How much agency did Edward himself yes. have? Uh, that's an interesting question. I mean, he obviously had some, and as the reign progresses, he becomes more and more confident and assertive and involved. I mean, at the point that he dies, he's not far off the age where they might have expected him to take control. And he's showing definite signs of interest in that. Uh, I think it's, it's probably a kind of mutual achievement between Edward himself, his tutors, his advisors. Some people have said that Edward was very immediately drawn to the Protestant message. I suspect, and this was something that Jennifer Loach emphasised, I suspect that one element of this that really, really appealed to him was the royal supremacy. And I think by the time you're getting to the 1550s, it's getting harder and harder to cast the royal supremacy in a more traditional sort of Catholic or conservative context um, because I think by the 1550s it is becoming clear that Catholicism to survive to regenerate is going to need to rally around the figure of the Pope and so I think you could argue that it's Edward VI's conviction that he must be the supreme head of the church in his country that helps push him towards a Protestant set of convictions but he seems to have been you know quite enthusiastic about the doctrine as well and he was certainly pushed quite hard by those around him um yeah and you see there is this sort of rhetoric at the time where the ideal of the godly king reinforced by old testament examples is a very powerful image and a very powerful kind of trope in political um, dialogue so Henry had himself 
set himself up as the godly king and a lot of the imagery the portraiture and so on from from henry's reign you know reflects that so i think edward took very much to that idea of, of godly kingship and yeah protestantism seemed to fit quite well with that and moving on to the reign of mary the first mm-hmm. um How successful would you say her attempts were at both restoring Catholicism and also attempting to reform it? Uh, Well, given she only had five years, I think she did a remarkable job. Of course, the traditional view of Mary, you know, was Bloody Mary, um, who was a disaster, who tried to turn the clock back, who tried to stem the inevitable tide of Protestant advance. You know, we had a very uh, well-established, rather triumphalist Protestant narrative in which Mary was just the odd one out. Um, And it's interesting that because it was assumed that Mary's religious policies were a disaster, everything else about her was assumed to be a disaster as well. One of the consequences of the revisionist view of the Reformation was that we had to think again about Mary, partly because we questioned this idea of rapid Protestant advance, we began to look more carefully at the sort of people who liked the pre-Reformation church, who did not want to abandon the religion of their grandparents and um, the religion that they knew and loved. Um, And so we paid more attention to that. Um, And I think we have paid more attention generally to the popular view Because, of course, Protestantism is very stridently espoused by a very articulate, very educated group within society. Um, They write books, they preach sermons, they, you know, argue um, in various sort of political arenas, uh, including Parliament. Uh, But if you are more interested in looking at the ordinary fabric of society, if you're more interested in looking at the ordinary individual, you begin to see a different picture. So... Mary herself always said that her country was essentially Catholic and that there was just a few rather strident Protestant voices that needed to be silenced. And everyone always took this as a view of how misguided and, and you know, lacking in perception she was. I think we're now beginning to feel that she might have been right after all. Um, so she seems to have done quite a good job. Um, she got the parish churches back together again, Uh, altars were restored, statues were brought out of hiding. Uh, These were the statues which were supposedly destroyed under Edward VI, but a remarkable number of them seem to have been actually just put in the broom cupboard and kept for another day. Uh, She did a lot to regenerate Catholicism in the universities. Um, It helped that she gave Oxford quite a, a healthy increase in its income. That's always welcome in the university. Uh, and uh, I think it's a mark of her success that when Elizabeth tries to bring in her Protestant settlement, she meets with a lot of resistance. And a lot of that resistance is from the bishops that Mary has put in place. And um, you know, quite a lot of people in the universities find themselves going into exile under Elizabeth because, yes, Mary has done quite a good job of regenerating the church. And there's also quite a lot of uh, books published um, to sort of help with that restoration. Um, we used to think that only Protestants knew how to use the printing press, but clearly uh, in Mary's reign, quite a lot of people knew how to do that too. 
Um, so yes, I think it was, it was insofar as it could be within five years, I think it was really quite successful. And of course you mentioned um, the common notion of Mary as Bloody Mary um, and as kind of the great persecutor of heretics among the Tudor monarchs. Um, but do you think that's actually true compared to um, the persecutions of say Henry or Elizabeth? Well, <clears throat> Mary's persecutions have this iconic uh, significance um, in the Protestant narrative, uh, largely because of John Fox's Acts and Monuments, more popularly known as the Book of Martyrs, um, which he first publishes in 1563. So we need to give proper consideration to these nearly 300 people who died at the stake. But you do need to also set it in context in that all of the Tudor monarchs were prepared to persecute I mean, it's been said that Elizabeth, in the wake of the Northern Rebellion of 1569, responded with unusual severity, um, and a lot of the rank and file were put to death, maybe as many as seven or 800 people. Um, and since they were rebelling in large part because of the Catholic cause, you know, it's been posited by some that Elizabeth killed three times as many Catholics as Mary killed Protestants. I, I think you need to be a little bit careful of having this kind of competitive view. Um, but certainly all of these Tudor monarchs were prepared to persecute when necessary. I suppose this is the thing. We have to get ourselves into the, a mindset where heresy is seen, as it was by these Tudor contemporaries, as as a contagion, as a disease that had the potential to infect an entire country and you know, damn their souls to all eternity. That's how it would have been seen. So Mary didn't like persecuting people. Um, the Marian church went to quite considerable lengths to try and persuade people not to be obdurate. And it encouraged quite a lot of people to leave the country rather than be persecuted. So from their point of view, burning someone at the stake is a failure. You failed to persuade them. Uh, but I think they felt it was necessary. Um, and I think within the, the broader context of you know, Europe as a whole, Mary's persecutions do not stand out as particularly out of kilter with what other people were doing. And maybe were in a way seen as a sort of a model for the Counter-Reformation more generally. I mean, people did look um, across the channel at what was going on in England because this was a kind of test case for could Protestantism be reversed and could the traditional faith be put back. Um, so people were quite attentive to what Mary was doing and seemed to feel she was doing quite well. And moving to the reign of Elizabeth, um, you've mentioned sort of the resistance to her religious settlement already, but um, what were her aims um, in trying to establish the religious settlement in the first place? Well, Elizabeth is a Protestant. We find it hard to pin down the details of precisely what her convictions were because she is characteristically a bit elusive about this. Um, but it's clear that her own religion 
was Protestantism of perhaps a slightly old-fashioned sort by the 1560s, but it was. Also, politically, she needs to be a Protestant because from a Catholic point of view, she is the illegitimate daughter of Henry VIII's mistress. She doesn't have any legitimacy as queen. So there were powerful political reasons pointing her in a Protestant direction as well. Um, of course, the older view of Elizabeth was that she wanted something moderate. She wanted something you know, cautious, not going to extremes. Uh, and we talk about the Via Media, the, the Elizabethan middle way. Um, and I think people still are under the impression that this was in somehow a compromise between Catholic and Protestant points of view. I think it's really important to dispel that. There's no such thing as a compromise between Protestant and Catholic points of view. If there was, we would have found one by now. And certainly in the really quite volatile atmosphere of the 1560s, nobody was really that interested in making concessions to the other side. So insofar as there is an element of compromise in the Elizabethan settlement, it's a compromise between different flavours of Protestantism. It is unequivocally still a Protestant settlement. Um, what she wanted, I think, was to build a Protestant nation, but a realistic one. You know, a one one that had some chance of stability. I think she could see the dangers of trying to impose a doctrine on an unwilling and potentially rebellious populace. So she's quite clear about certain points of definition, but she's also quite cautious about certain points of implementation. And this clearly annoyed some of the men around her who felt that she should be taking uh, a more kind of vigorous approach to imposing Protestantism and evangelizing. Um, I think she took a, actually a more vigorously Protestant line than a lot of people think, but she was still a very able politician and she knew that there was no point in uh, hammering home a religious message if it was going to just lead to political difficulties and political instability. So she's, she is a Protestant, but she's also a statesman. Some say that um, Elizabeth's sort of vision of the Church of England has remained quite pervasive. You know, the modern Book of Common Prayer kind of calls back to um, the Book of Common Prayer that she published mm -hmm. as part of her religious settlement. Um, why do you think it has been so pervasive? Well, there, I mean, there are points of continuity through the history of the Church of England, yes. Um, but there are also very marked disjunctions along the way. Um, and the, the, our vision here is kind of muddied by a lot of went, what went on in the 19th century from an Anglo-Catholic point of view, if you like, um, to take that as an example. They would see that the Church of England as, ha as having um, strong continuities, not just with the 16th century church, but with the pre-Reformation church as well. But from an evangelical, a modern evangelical point of view, that would be quite strongly contested. So uh, I think the main um, point of continuity in the Church of England has perhaps been the potential for disagreement um, and debate about quite what, what became Anglican identity really consists of. Um, 
And the Book of Common Prayer, too, has been through quite a lot of different um, iterations and has been, I think, used quite differently and seen quite differently. Um, but I suppose that the real point of continuity is the supremacy. Now, Elizabeth made herself supreme governor rather than head of the Church of England, but that idea that the head of the state is also the head of the church, which is still with us today, perhaps has a rather different meaning in the 21st century, but for most of English and British history since the Reformation, I think the royal supremacy has been a defining feature because it means that there is always uh, a political significance to any doctrinal formulation, tradition, or change. So I think that has been the most important common thread running through those centuries. So we've been uh, speaking quite chronological terms um, so far, but to take more of a holistic view, I suppose, of the whole period, um, why do you think so many people were willing to take up arms in rebellion in the names of religion? Uh, because obviously we do have quite a few rebellions across the period and many of them are religiously inspired to a certain degree at least. Um, mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? Well, I suppose that goes back to our first question. You know, what do people understand by church? Nowadays, perhaps, we might think of religion as being something very individual and, and a matter of individual conscience, individual choice, uh, and people do select their religions. Um, I mean, I know some people are brought up in a faith community, but still, I think in the modern world there's that sense of, well, you know, I am going to be whatever it might be. Um, so there's not necessarily that automatic association of religious conviction with your own personal identity. But I think in the 16th century, your religion was so fundamentally a part of who you were. It defined your family, your kinship groups, your community, that people felt their religion was something indivisible from himself as an individual so and and they f and then they also felt very you know passionately about religion it's clear from the number of books that were written from the as you say the uprisings um from various forms of protest because you don't have to rebel to be protesting you know at, at all different levels we can see that people took these religious changes seriously and they cared about them and they minded uh, I mean, the greatest rebellions of the 16th century are fueled by religion in some shape or form. So I think it's because people felt very seriously about uh, the Christian message, they saw the world in providential terms. Uh, I mean, nowadays, if there's a thunderstorm, you think, damn, I've forgotten my umbrella. You don't think, why is God angry with me? Probably. You don't anyway. Uh, so you know you've got to put yourself back into a, a, a century in which every uh, freak of nature, everything that happened to you, might have some kind of providential meaning. You know, if your babies didn't survive like Henry VIII didn't, you didn't think about how sad that was. You went a stage further and thought 
what have I done to offend God? Why am I being punished? So if you're born and brought up with that kind of a mental world surrounding you, religion is not something that is lightly cast aside or ignored. And if you feel that it's being challenged, then you feel like your entire way of life is being challenged. Your entire community is under threat. So that, I think, is why you are prepared to take up arms and fight. Wonderful, thank you. And that's the end of my questions, but um, is there anything else you'd like to mention about the Tudor Church in general before you finish? Oh, um, <laughs> that's a very big question. Um, I suppose there's all sorts of things I could, yes, you want to be careful, I could, I could talk for hours, but um, I think it's very exciting that historical study has moved away from some of the sort of accepted truths of, of you know, the mid-20th century and has challenged so much about what we used to take for granted. And in particular, I think the move towards understanding the kind of social reality, if you like, uh, of religious belief and practice is really interesting because it's very hard to get into the hearts and minds of people from 500 years ago they don't write diaries they don't write down what they're feeling you know even when they do start to keep diaries or, or you know when they're writing their letters there's not much of the personal that comes through they tend to follow quite sort of established patterns so your best bet really for getting into the hearts and minds of the people from the 16th century is to go through a religious um, channel because so much emotion and um, so much commitment was sort of centered on their religious lives just as religion also was behind much of the art the music the architecture of the time you know if we're really to understand how people lived and felt in the 16th century then I think religious history is pretty much our best way to do that Wonderful. Thank you so much, Lucy. No, thank you very much. That was fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of Oxpods. If you enjoyed it, please do recommend to a friend and check out our episodes from other channels too. To keep up to date with episode releases, to suggest ideas for new episodes, or to get involved with recording, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or go straight to our website at www.oxpods.co.uk.